So we're going through the book of Genesis. Of course, that's something I enjoy quite a lot. Yeah, I've read through it more than once. Um, I will say this. I had a friend that that did this, and uh, the only reason I don't do it is because I know I'd be just copying him wholesale. But one of the things that he used to do, or he I may still do uh, when he would speak on apologetics, is he takes a Bible and he cuts out everything except the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And he says, here's my foundation. And the reason he does is because every major Bible doctrine can find its root in the book of Genesis. And so how we handle that determines a lot of what we get theologically from the rest of the scriptures. Does that make sense? Okay. Turn with me then, if you will. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. We're making our way chapter by chapter through the book of Genesis. And chapter 7 is basically the flood narrative. We got through chapter 6 last time, and I misspoke and said I disagreed with um, John MacArthur. It's not true. It was John Walton. But uh, about five people let me know before I got out the back door, hey, look, John MacArthur teaches what you're teaching. You're right. So the good thing about having a church where people do read and study is if you misspeak and say something wrong, oh, you'll find out about it. Oh, yes, you will. And I did. Okay. Let's go to Genesis chapter 7. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. For I've seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mates, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I'll send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, And every living thing that I have made, I'll blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the floods came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. I want you to notice it says this, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. It didn't just rain. We teach that, you know, the song to our our kids, right? Rain for 40 days and 40 nights without stopping, right? Yes, it did rain. But that's not the only place that the water came from. And that's important for you to know. Because a lot of people mock and scoff at the idea and they'll say that. You think it rained so much that it flooded the earth. Well, yes, it did rain. But that's not all it did. The fountains of the great deep broke forth. There's more water in the magma of the earth than there is in all of our atmosphere combined. There's a lot of water in there. It's what allows rock to be We say plastic. It's what allows molten rock to basically move like a fluid. Anybody been watching what's going on in Hawaii? Right? By the way, that's the longest-running active volcano on Earth. It has been erupting continuously at least least 33 years. That's as long as we've been tracking it, but at least for 33 years. And now it's getting even a little more active, isn't it? 
Yeah, why is it that lava can flow like the way that it does? Well, because it actually has water in it as well. So the the, the molten rock um, gives off, you know, when, when rock gets that hot, it starts giving off steam. And the reason it does is because it has water vapor in there. Okay, anyway, enough of that. The fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And on that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind. That's important. And all the livestock according to their kinds. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And every bird according to its kind. Notice it does not say according to its species. That's also very important. I get this question. This is the, the assertion that I get a lot. You think that one and a half, roughly one and a half or 1.3 billion species of animals went on the ark with Noah. Ha, ha, ha. No, I think that idea is laughable as well. I think, just like the scriptures say, two of each kind, not of every species. I don't think every species of dog went with Noah onto that ark. I think two of the dog kind, something like a wolf, went onto that ark. And when they got off the ark, they started breeding. And their offspring went to different locations. And there were different pressures exerted on them. And from that, we get the different species. I do not think, and I do not think the scriptures teach, every species of animal went with him. And we're going to talk about some of that today. I want you to notice it's according to its kind. It's something more like a family. Every bird according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Who shut him in? The Lord shut him in. That's pretty important. How did Noah close the door? He didn't. That's a big door. How did he do it? He didn't have to. The Lord shut him in. How in the world could Noah build a boat that could withstand that kind of storm? Very simply, the Lord shut him in. Noah did what he knew to do, but the Lord shut him in. I don't know if you've thought about this, but he, he used a kind of wood. We don't even really know what it is. The, the, the Hebrew word is literally gopher. It's gopher word, wood. If you read the NIV, you'll notice it says cypress wood. Do you want to know why? It's just a guess. It's a kind of wood that's often used for projects that will have to be wet because it withstands rot very well. And so the NIV translator said, hey, that's our best guess, literally. We don't know what kind of wood it was. It must have been pretty tough. And it probably was rather tough to find. It took 120 years to build that boat. That's a long time. I don't know if you've thought about that, but that also means that boat was sitting, some of the boards of that boat were sitting there, had to be withstanding rot for 120 years. That's a long time. I wonder why he'd have to coat it. Why do you have to coat it with pitch? It wasn't just for the water. It was also to withstand the rot. I think it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes when we look at passages like this for us to grasp. This is a real event that really happened. We read it so often, we think in our mind, it's just like this, it's almost like a fairy tale. You know, it's, it's this story about something that happened long, long ago, and we forget that there are very practical concerns and matters that took place that Noah had to think about, and that God equipped Noah to deal with. Okay, 
The flood continued 40 days on the earth. That's a lot of rain. And the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above all the high mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. If, if the cubit we use there is about 18 inches, that's roughly 25 feet. It's a lot of water. It covers all the high mountains. You mean it covered Mount Everest? No, Mount Everest probably wasn't there yet. That's something else we have to think about. The earth did not look like the earth that we see today. The earth we see today is not what was flooded. It was that world that was flooded. Was there a Mount Everest? Probably not. This is a different kind of earth. Psalms tells us that at the end of the flood, God made some sort of tectonic process. It says the mountains rose up, the valleys sank down, and the waters receded. They ran off. So there was a lot of mountain building. There was a lot of valley building going on afterward. Okay, so did the waters, that, that's a common objection. You think there's enough water that could, that could, you know, rain on the earth, that could cover Mount Everest, but it didn't have to. It wasn't there. It's not the same earth we're looking at today. Do you understand where I'm, where I'm going with that? Okay. The waters prevailed mightily above all the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. And all mankind. There was a purpose for that flood. And that purpose was carried out. And it was to judge sin. And all mankind that did not go through the door of that ark perished. And I'm going to tell you something that's the same today. There is judgment coming for sin. And all mankind that does not go through the door of Jesus Christ will perish. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. That's important. In whose nostrils was the breath of life. That's important because there's two separate kinds of animals spoken of in the Old Testament. These are nephesh. That's the word, the Hebrew word, nephesh animals. Insects are not talked of as nephesh animals. There seems to be a distinction that God makes between some kind of animals and some others. But all of those nephesh animals, everything that was nephesh, that was on the ground, died. If it wasn't in the ark, it died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. He didn't blot out every living thing. Did Noah take fish with him on the ark? No. Were there fish after the flood? Yes. God didn't kill every living thing. He killed the land. Every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, snakes, right? Those are creeping things. <laughs> or creepy things, depending on how you look at it, I guess. Man and animals, creeping things, and the birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. That is a long time. Okay. Was this Genesis chapter 7? Is that what you opened Okay. Let's see if we can get through this then. All right. I want to remind you of this. Second Peter says a few things about the flood. Number one, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was preaching before he got on that ark. Why was Noah preaching? I don't know. 
probably because God told him to. We're not recorded everything. Uh, but Noah was preaching. Noah was still preaching about God and his righteousness, probably the gospel, and hoping that people would become, would, would repent, would come, come to, to be saved. And by the way, there was more room in that ark than was necessary for him and the animals. It was big enough to hold extra people. If others would have repented, there was room for them in the ark. All of the animals and all of their food would have only taken up about half the space in that ark. There was plenty of room for others. But you know what? Others didn't come. There were eight people on that boat. And all the rest of mankind was destroyed. Okay, so Second Peter says this, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. How strange. How strange that sexual desire is actually included in this. We'll get into that. For this they willfully forget. They willfully forget. They forget it on purpose. That the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Why do people willfully forget about the flood? Why do they mock it? Why do they want it not to be talked about? Why do they want to not be brought back into their face? Very simply because this. The flood is evidence that God judges sin. And when you're living a sinful life, when you're living a, a life of sin, you don't want to be reminded that you're going to have to give account for that one day. They willfully forget this. Why does it say walking according to their own lust? Here's why. I was an agnostic before I was a Christian. I was not an agnostic because there wasn't enough evidence to convince me of God. Every man knows that there's a God. Romans 1 tells us that. And we're without without excuse for it, by the way. So why in the world is that? Because I wanted to be free to live my life without constraints. I was reading about a man who, uh, in the 16th, 16th century, 17th century, sorry, I guess 17th century, 1600s, um, decided he wanted to live a life without constraints. He was from a very uh, Christian upbringing, and so he went and lived on basically the Ivory Coast where the slave trade was going on because he knew he could live there and basically do what he wanted, and nobody would know. He could live a life without constraint. That is the heart of sin. That's the heart of the sinner. I want to live without constraint. That's why people become atheists. They're not atheists because you didn't give them enough good evidence. Don't think for a minute that your friend who's an atheist or an agnostic, whatever, a humanist, a skeptic, is that way because you haven't given them enough evidence for Christ. They know better. They know in their heart of hearts there is a God and they will give an account to that God one day. The reason they live that way typically is because they want to live a lifestyle free to feed their own lust. Okay? You've got to know that before you go into the conversation. Ultimately, the reason they're rejecting Christ is not because they don't have good enough reasons. It's because they want to live their own sinful lifestyle. They want to embrace the sin that they love. And to do that, they suppress knowledge about the God that they know about. They actually know there's a God. And they're suppressing that knowledge so that they can embrace the sin that they love. Okay, moving on. Let me give you the rundown of the flood narrative. Long story short, Noah gets in the boat. God shuts the door. It starts raining and the fountains of the deep break forth. Both of those happen simultaneously. A lot of water comes upon the earth. Everything, including man, drowns. Okay, it's dead. 
Some of those things that are drowned, obviously, go about by the regular manner. They were probably eaten in the waters. They're picked apart by whatever, the birds that were flying around or the, the fish that were swimming around. But some of them got buried. They got buried in a lot of mud. Because during that flood, a lot of sand would have been picked up by that water. It was probably pretty warm water. And there's going to be some minerals as well in that sand, isn't there? So some of those things got buried uh, by all of that rock. And it got pretty heavy. And it squished them. And it turned them into different things. If there wasn't a lot of bacteria and not a lot of air pockets in that sand, they, they might have become fossilized. Um, if there was enough bacteria in there, the bacteria probably would eat away the flesh, and all you get left is the bones. The bones get permineralized. That means minerals, little tiny pieces of rock, take the place of all the calcium and phosphorus and the other minerals inside the bone, and it becomes rock in the shape of a bone. And what do we call that? Fossil, yeah. A fossil is actually a rock, okay? A fossil is a sedimentary rock in the shape of a bone. It's not actually a bone. There is no more bone there if it's a fossil, okay? It's been, we call it permineralized. So the other thing that could happen is it gets squished down and there's lots of heat and lots of pressure. It gets turned into coal or oil. When I see the big trains come past, just like I'll probably get interrupted today by a train, sometimes the trains that come past here have a lot of coal. And it's incredible to me to see how much coal goes past and to think train after train after train after train after train for a lot of years has been carrying that coal. And we're a long way from exhausting the supply. There was a lot of living stuff that got buried in that flood. A lot. A lot of trees, a lot of animals, and guess what? A lot of people too. Okay. At the end of that, the Psalms tell us that uh, the mountains, basically there was big tectonic activity. The mountains rose up, the valleys sank down, the water rushed off. All right? And so we should see evidence of that. If if that story is true, we should see evidence. There's, gonna, there's very, very clear evidence that this scripture in the Psalms is true. Let me tell you what that clear evidence is. Remember, what kind of rock was made from this flood? There's only one kind of rock. Sedimentary. Lots of little particles of sand, basically, or particles of different kinds of rock that are sorted by density and are laid down in layers. Now, here's the thing. You cannot bend sedimentary rock. Sedimentary rock is still really hard stuff sometimes, depending on what it is. Slate, for example, is a sedimentary rock. How hard is slate? I don't know. Hard enough you can make a billiard table out of it. You're not going to bend it. You may shatter it, but you won't bend it. So here's what we're going to find. We're going to find geological evidence that actually testifies to that very thing. Sedimentary rock will not bend. It'll break. And when we see layers of sedimentary rock that have folds in them rather than being shattered, that is evidence that they were folded when they were still wet. You can't fold them after they dry. They just shatter. So when we see bent sedimentary layers, it tells us this. Those layers were all laid down in some massive catastrophic water event because they were sorted hydrologically. It means by water. And then bent while they were wet. Weird. I've read something about that in a really good book. Strange, isn't it? Why doesn't that get brought up in geology class? Well, it doesn't fit the narrative. All right. 
You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. Psalm 104. All right. Genesis 8 goes on to say, God remembered Noah. Right? The waters receded steadily from the earth, and the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. All right. Let me go on for some questions and objections concerning this flood. We'll get to it as quickly as possible. Here's the first one. I get this all the time. I mean, I think this is the most common <coughs> objection I get when I talk about the flood. And th- here's what it is. There's no way that could have happened. You believe that story is true. Yes, I do. There's no way that ark was big enough to hold that many animals. I, I'm serious. I, I hear that objection over and over and over. And I love asking two questions. Okay, how big was the ark? Well, I don't know, but it wasn't big enough to hold all those animals. Well, okay, well, how many animals went on board? Well, I don't know, but there was definitely more than the ark could hold. Can you think about the logic here? Okay, so you're telling me a boat of undetermined size cannot hold an undetermined number of animals. You did not take logic as a class, did you, sir? We do not teach that in school anymore. Yes, there was plenty of room on that ark. The question now is, how big was the ark and how many animals went on? Well, the ark was pretty big. It was real big when you think about what they were working with. Good gravy. Hey, buddy, I know you've never built a boat before in your life, but you're going to have to build one good enough to withstand the greatest storm of all time and keep you and your family and a bunch of animals alive. These amateurs built the ark. Professionals built the Titanic. I mean, you know, go figure. How big was it? Well, it was at least these dimensions. Answers in Genesis likes to use the smallest cubit. It was measured out in cubits, right? Anybody know what a cubit is? How big is a cubit? Arm's length. Fingers extended from elbow to fingertip. Problem is, is there a standard cubit? You might not believe this, but Ronnie Qualls' cubit and my cubit are not the same. They're not the same length. Ronnie has a really long cubit. No. Uh, some people's arms are longer than others, right? I'm about six foot five, and I'm built so that my knuckles almost drag the ground when I walk. So I have a fairly long cubit, right? Um, at the t- there is no such thing as a standard cubit. The cubit could range anywhere from about 16 inches, roughly, to more than 22 inches. So it wasn't a standardized measure. Typically, it was however the big the king's arm was, that was the standard measure. How big was the cubit Noah was using? We don't know. We know that the Hebrews had two cubits that they used. There was the short and there was the long. The short was 18 inches. The long was a little over 20. So we're going to do this. We're Just to placate the skeptics, we're going to use the smallest one, the 18 inches. Right? That's what Answers in Genesis does. I use the 20-inch because it's about in the middle. That it's an 18-inch cubit. It's 437 feet long. It's 73 feet wide, and it's 44 feet high. That is a big, big boat, basically built like a box. Right? I had a guy tell me one time, obviously this ship could not have been built that way. Why? Well, the, the masts would have put so much strain, it would have you know, pulled the ship apart. That was a legitimate concern, by the way, in uh, 15th, 16th, 17th century shipping. Right? If your mast start because you've got a big enough mast and it catches enough wind, puts enough strain that the wood, you know, the slats in the boat start coming apart. I said, where does the Bible say the ark had mass? Where were they going? Everything's being destroyed. It's not like, you. hey, let's go to another port. There is no other port to go to. It's get in the box, shut the door, survive, land. That's it. Easy game plan. 
big, big boat. Uh, a maximum of about 16,000 animals. There's a study of kinds of animals. It's called baromenology. The guys that study this stuff have come up with a number roughly around 14,000. We'll say 16,000 just to give benefit of the doubt. If you had to take two of every kind and seven of every clean kind, you get roughly 16,000 animals. Notice this. I actually believe there were some dinos that went on that ark. That's what I believe. Why? Because he took two of every kind. They couldn't fit. They're too big. How stupid are you? I'm, I'm pretty sure Noah was 600 years old. He was probably old enough, wise enough, smart enough to realize he didn't have to take the biggest ones he could find. And since God was the one that brought the animals to him, I'll bet he didn't bring the biggest ones he could find. Reptiles grow their entire life. Uh, most dinosaurs were reptilian. So typically when you're seeing a big one, you're seeing an old one, just like snakes today or iguanas or whatever today. You see a big one, it's an old one. If you're trying to repopulate a new earth, do you take these senior citizens? No. You don't take the oldest ones you can find, which would be the biggest ones you can find. You take young ones, right? Ones that are going to have a long time to be able to have offspring. It's just like, you know, if all mankind died today and we were having to start the entire human population over again, you wouldn't take two senior citizens, would you? I mean, you're going to have trouble here. Okay, We're going to run into a problem here. So you take young ones. As long as you get one that's pink and one that's blue, you're pretty much okay, right? Okay, so let's say roughly 16,000 animals. They could certainly fit without a problem. Actually, they'd fill about half the storage space. The average size would have been about the size of a sheep. There's some that might have been a little bigger. There's a lot that would have been smaller. But the average was about the size of a sheep. Notice this. Even big dinosaurs were small once. Right? They're just too big. You shouldn't take elephants on there. They're too big. Well, yeah, the big ones are big. But the little ones are not big, right? The giraffes, they just can't fit. You ever seen that? The, the Noah's Ark, right? They've got the giraffes poking their head out the top, right? They can't fit in there. Yeah, that's true. You know, 25-foot-tall adults would not fit in there. That's true. But you don't have to take the oldest ones, the biggest ones you can find. And he was smart enough to know that. Okay. How could 1.3 million known species fit on the Ark? Well, you don't take 1.3 known species on the Ark. Remember, the Bible does not say... Noah took species. It says he took kinds. I was actually sent this picture by someone years ago telling me, hey, obviously this is not true. How do you respond to this? There's no way you could fit this all on the ark. I said, well, that's true. There is no way you could take this onto the ark. No doubt about it. You could not fit, you know, two million insects on the ark. No, no doubt about it. You didn't have to take all that. There were no insects on the ark. They don't breathe through nostrils. You don't have to worry about, you don't have to worry about the insects drowning in this big flood. If you think you have to worry about all the insects dying after a, go somewhere where this flood has been. You will find there are many, many insects living just fine and well, especially in the driftwood and the little planks and stuff that's left over. You don't have to take every species. You just have to take of each kind. And only a certain kind, only nephesh animals. Right? Didn't have to take any insects. None of them went on the ark. He didn't have to worry about the termites. He didn't take any. Right? He didn't have to take any sea creatures. He didn't have to take any gilled animals. He didn't have to take slugs or snails or crabs or any of that. He didn't have to take amphibians. He didn't have to worry about they have gills at some point in their lifestyle or at some point in their life cycle or they can breathe through their skin. So he didn't have to worry about all of that. The only thing that was really of a concern are the land animals 
that breathe using these tubes. We call them nostrils, right? Is it possible Noah's flood was just a local event? This is very common today. It's very common people will say this. And the reason they say this is because if you say the flood was local, at least you can save face with, you know, the humanist academics who have an entirely different worldview and want you to adopt their worldview. Here's the problem with that. Number one, how do you, how do you cover the tops of every tall mountain and it be a local event? Water is self-leveling, right? <laughs> Second, if, if you're only going to flood the Mesopotamian basin, why do you have to use 120 years to build a boat? Just move. You can leave the Mesopotamian basin in much less than 120 years. You can hike all the way across it on foot in a year without a problem. A couple years. I'll even give you 10. You can stop and see all the sights, smell all the roses, you know. Why would you have to flood it? No, the flood was for one purpose, and that was wiping out all life. Second thing, Mesopotamian Basin didn't exist. Mesopotamian Basin is after the flood. The ground that we have today, the land that we have today, looks much different than it did before. Okay? Second thing, if it is true that God only flooded a local area, then God is a covenant breaker. You have just made God a liar. Well, how so? Because at the end of that thing, God said, I'll never do this again. And here's my rainbow to show you. Has there ever been a local flood since then? Darn right there has. Lots of them. Some of them really big. Did God break his word or did you make God a liar by adopting that view? Most people who adopt that view never even, they never think that through. They never force their theology to line up with what they believe. I believe it was just a local flood. Then you believe God has lied. God said he would never flood the earth like whatever he did again. And you're telling me he has. No, God said he'd never flood the whole earth again. That's what the flood was. That's what Noah's flood was. It was the entire earth. And when God said he'll never do it again, what he's saying is I will never blot all life out again with floodwaters. I mean, eventually he will. Next time, it's not going to be by water, though. What's it going to be? Fire. You know, keeping the door open. Okay. What are some of the best evidences of Noah's flood? I'm going to give you six, and I'm going to go through them rather quickly. Number one, marine or sea life fossils on the tops of the highest mountain ranges. We find sea fossils everywhere. Everywhere you go, you get the same speech. You know, at one time, this was actually part of a big ocean. It doesn't matter where you go. I've, I've taken geology trips in different places. I've, I've gone on a few shark's teeth hunting in western Kansas. You may notice something. Western Kansas is semi-arid. Right? That means five inches less of rain per year would be a desert. It's dry. Okay? Real dry. My family's farmers out there. We know about that. Actually had one year where we planted wheat and we had so little rain the wheat didn't even germinate. Didn't even come up out of the ground. Let me tell you something, when you spend multiple thousands of dollars on seed and you go stick it in the ground and it doesn't even come up, it will cause you some stress, my friend. It's dry out there. And yet, you know what we do on the weekends? Sometimes my, my grandma, who was, she was big into this geology, she was like this amateur geologist, let's go fossil hunting. We go find shark's teeth. My grandma has a huge collection of shark's teeth that she has found in western Kansas. And every time you get... 
A geologist, well, the reason you guys find this is at one time this is part of an ocean. It doesn't matter where you go, you get the same speed. Well, one time this is part of an ocean. Have you ever thought that all of those areas that you think were one time part of an ocean, they overlap? Maybe it's because at one time all of this was an ocean. Why is it that we can find, seriously, every single high mountain range, every high mountain range in the world has had marine fossils found on it? Every one of them. The Andes, the Rock, all of them, including the Rockies. Why is that? Is it possible that maybe, I don't know, the floodwaters covered it at one point in time? And by the way, some of them are big ones. Here's uh, the Andes in Peru. These are giant oyster fossils. These are not just round, oblong-shaped rocks. By the way, these are not Christian explorers that found those fossils. Second thing I'd like you to notice about these fossils, they're in the closed position. That's very significant. Why? If you go to the beach and you pick up seashells, do you pick up shells that are in the closed position? Or do you just pick up halves? Well, you pick up halves. The reason is because when those mollusks, uh, when they die, they open up. And some other, you know, fish or whatever eats all the guts and the muscle on the inside, right? And all you find is the shell, it's open. So how in the world do you get all of these things in the closed position? They had to be living and then rapidly buried by sediment. I've got a hypothesis about that. I think at one time there was this really big flood. And I think it moved a lot of sediments. And it buried a lot of stuff very rapidly. And so today we find marine fossils like these giant oysters high up in the mountains. Second, the presence of fossil graveyards. How do you have a fossil graveyard? It's very simple. You have a whole bunch of stuff covered at one time. You have a school of fish that gets covered. Well, how could a school of fish get covered? They're in the ocean. They have to get covered by land. They have to get covered by sediments. Well, during the flood, the moon did not just disappear. Here's why that's significant. The moon causes the tides. Okay? So the tides would have still been moving. That means lots of, uh, of sediments underwater. It's almost like having an underwater mud flow, okay? A big mud flow. Would that have covered fish? Yeah. Would fish do fish school if they're frightened? Yeah, typically so. Not every kind of fish does, but a lot of fish do. And then all of a sudden they're buried rapidly. You'd have a fossil graveyard. You do not get that in the regular manner. When a fish normally dies, it boom, floats. And then what happens? Well, it gets eaten. And then the bones and whatever's left kind of falls down and you don't have much anymore. So how in the world do you form a fossil? You form a fossil by it being buried rapidly while alive. Um, here's another one. Bent sedimentary rock layers. Remember I told you this. You don't bend rock layers. You shatter them if they're, if they're, uh, if they're already dry, sedimentary rock. To get a bent rock layer, this thing has to be wet when it bends. Look at this thing. 90-degree turn twice. How in the world do you get that without shattering it? It was wet when it got bent. That's how. Which meant it was a lot of water to make that much rock that wet. To, to hydrologically sort things, to sort stuff. If you take a bunch of sand, you throw it in water. Sand of all different types. Shake it. You can put it in a jar. You can do this in a jar. You know, take a cup of sand, a cup of silt, a cup of dirt. All right, put some pea gravel in there, shake it all up, sit it down, let it sort out. It'll sort by density. All right, the most dense material 
goes to the, the bottom the fastest, right, and settles into a layer, and the next dents, and then the next, and what, what you have is layers then. You have layers of mud. That's exactly what's happened now on a global scale. That's what we're seeing. That's evidence of hydrological sorting. You don't get that without a flood. And if you ask the geologist, how in the world did this happen? Well, at one time, this actually was covered with water as part of a flood. Yep, I agree. How about flood legends? Why do so many cultures have flood legends today? Here's the Hawaiian flood legend. Long after the death of, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name, the first man who ever lived, the world became a wicked, terrible place to live. There was one good man left. His name was Nu'u. Hmm. He made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. The waters came up over all the earth and killed all the people. Only Nu'u and his family were saved. Have you heard something like that somewhere? How about the Chinese legend, right? Fu Hai is the one that the Chinese consider to be the father of their civilization. Uh, Fu Hai, his wife, three sons, and three daughters escaped a great flood. He and his family were the only people left alive. After the great flood, they repopulated the world. Have you, have you heard about that somewhere? How about the Toltec, right? Uh, 1,716 years after the world was first made, the Toltecs believe it was destroyed by a great flood that covered even the highest mountains. A few men escaped the destruction by getting into a chest. Following the great flood, they began to multiply. They built a very high zakuli, or a ziggurat, uh, or a great tower, and it provided a safe place in the world if the world were destroyed again. However, their languages became confused, and so different language groups wandered to other parts of the world. Have you heard a story like that somewhere? Why is that so ubiquitous to cultures? We are right here in the middle of the Chickasaw Nation, Choctaw Nation. Both of those cultures have flood legends. Why is it that there is this legend in more than 270 different cultures, there's a legend of a great flood wiping out the entire earth and only a small number of people survived in this little place, this little boat? Maybe because it's a recounting. I realize, just like a lot of other legends, it starts with the truth and the details get changed a little bit, but maybe it's recounting the actual thing. Four, how about fossil evidence of rapid burial? This is actually back by my home, western Kansas. This is a fish within a fish. This thing got buried so quickly, it was unable to digest its last meal. That's fast. You don't get a fossil like this by dying the original way, right? You have to be buried rapidly. This thing has to be buried so fast that its meal can't be digested. That's fast. That's rapid burial. And there's some other ones. Uh, if I had time, I could give you a gazillion of them. Here's another one. Dinosaur cells have been found unfossilized. Tell me how you do that. T-Rex found with red blood cells still in it, not fossilized. And the uh, ligaments and tendons were still stretchy. Ah, happened for 75 million years. It just sat there. Blood cells are just tough. They're not that tough, brother. In your body, they last about 120 days. They didn't sit around for 75 million years. A few thousand, maybe. 75 million, you're out of your mind. Why didn't that get into the textbook? That doesn't fit the narrative. Here's a sixth. I love talking about it. I've actually been talking with Mason about this stuff this week. Radiometric dating. I think if you understand radiometric dating, it is the strongest proof for young earth creation. Strongest class of evidence. Let me talk to you about one of those. And this will be the last thing. I'll end with this. Carbon. Everybody's heard of carbon dating, right? right C14. 
Um, basically, here's how it works. You take in, you, when, you're, when you're breathing, you take in oxygen, right? You turn that into carbon dioxide and breathe it out. Well, a little bit of carbon dioxide, every so, like every trillion or three trillion molecules is actually C14. So plants and other stuff take in that C14, and the theory goes we can see how long it's dead by how much is still in it because that C14 breaks down, right? Carbon breaks down very quickly. In fact, if you had an entire earth made of carbon in a million years, you'd have no C14 left. Okay, very, very rapidly. So things that are very, very old should have no C14 because it breaks down so quickly. You with me? So we've never even thought to test them because, well, everybody just knows coal is at least 30 million years old and diamonds are at least one and a half billion years old. Obviously, there's not going to be any C14 in there. And so a bunch of guys who were creationists and also had PhDs in geology uh, finally, oh, almost 20 years ago now, decided, hey, let's just test some of that stuff and see. Anybody ever tested it? Well, no. I'm stupid to test it. Obviously, it's not going to have a C14. It's millions of years old. Ha, 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 you idiots. Why would you do such a thing? So they did. Furthermore, they had it tested by a lab that was very well known to be secular. We're not sending it to Liberty University. They sent it to UC Davis. Pretty sure no Christians are making that one, right? We're going to make sure they do their own research so they can't blame us for being biased. So they did the research. The scientists call up to UC Davis. Hey, what's going on? What's taking so long? Well, we've done it, but we're getting some weird results, so we're trying it again. Call back. Hey, what's going on? Why is it taking so long? Hey, we got weird results again, so we're trying it a third time. Guess what they found every time? Blew their minds. Found C14 in the coal. So they sent coal in from different seams, different samples, because they're supposed to be older. Got C14, and guess what? They got C14 in about the same number, about the same abundance. That can't be right because this seam is supposed to be 150 million years old and that seam is supposed to be 37 million years old. They sure shouldn't have any C14 and they sure shouldn't have any the, the same amount of C14. And yet it is. So then they sent in diamonds, by the way. They're way too old to have any C14, right? All of them tested. Every one of them ever tested had C14 still in it. I think that's pretty good evidence. Here's what I'm going to close with. There is a war today. And the war is basically between God's revelation and man's autonomy. There are a lot of people who want to be free from God's revelation. I want to live as if there's no God. Don't tell me that there's a God. And I'm going to tell you this. You can live that way, but one day you're going to find out there is judgment. There is God's wrath. You know what the great thing is? God has provided a way of escape. It's through his son. Jesus is the door of salvation. And all who go in by him will be saved. They will. But you can be assured if you don't, you will find wrath. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is truth. The entrance of your word gives light. We thank you for that, Lord, of, of revealing yourself to us. We know that, that um, your word is your record of your revelation to mankind. I thank you, God, that you give us over and over and over evidence again that we can trust your word. Father, I ask that everyone here, Lord, would be encouraged to know that your word is faithful, it's true, it's without error, and it is trustworthy. Thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said...